Welcome to Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler. I'm Kent Lampert. Each week, we'll bring you a sampling of some of the best Catholic podcasts being prepared and shared out there on the internet. Lent is coming to a close. This weekend, we mark Palm Sunday, and we hear about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Why did he enter the holy city in this manner when he had walked into Jerusalem any number of times before? In this week's first offering on the sampler, Edward III explains this happening in this episode of All Things Catholic, The Palm Sunday Prophecy. Hi, I'm Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. It's hard to believe we are approaching the end of Lent. Next week is Holy Week, and it all begins this Sunday, Palm Sunday. And I want you to enter into Holy Week well. I want you to finish your Lent strong. And so in this podcast, I'm going to prepare you for the beginning of Holy Week, Palm Sunday. What is this mysterious event all about? Jesus suddenly gets to the Holy City of Jerusalem and he asks for a donkey. That's strange. That's just bizarre. Do you ever think about that? We've never seen Jesus ask for a donkey before. He's walking everywhere he goes, right? When he's traveling from village to village, from city to city, how does he travel? What's his primary mode of transportation? It's always walking, right? He's walking everywhere, except when he's on the Sea of Galilee. Then he's on a boat, but even then he walks sometimes, right? So Jesus is always walking. So for us to all of a sudden see him say, go get me a donkey, That's surprising. What does this mean? And then he enters the city and the peoples are ecstatic. They hail him as a king. They take off their garments and lay them before the road in front of him. They wave palm branches and they shout out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is this mysterious event all about? That's what we're going to look at here today. But to understand, to feel the weight of Palm Sunday, I need to take you back a few weeks earlier in the gospel story to a significant turning point in Jesus's ministry. It's a scene that took place in Caesarea Philippi. It's known as Peter's Confession of Faith. Uh, Let me take you back there, because if you understand Peter's Confession of Faith, then you're going to really appreciate what's happening at Palm Sunday so much more. Uh, So here's the scene. Jesus is with his apostles in the farthest north we've ever seen him in his public ministry, in the district known as Caesarea Philippi. And while he's there, he asks the apostles a very personal question. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, Peter is the first one to come right out and he represents everybody. He says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And I want you to feel the weight of that. You see, Jesus has been going around for three years announcing a kingdom. And many people are hoping that he is the long-awaited prophesied one, the great Messiah King. They've heard about his miracles. They've heard about his amazing teaching. Certainly, if you were one of those apostles there that day, you're, you're really hoping, because you've been following him for three years so closely as one of his, his disciples, you're really hoping he is the Messiah. But Peter's the first one to come right out and say it. He says it. You are the Christ, aren't you? 
And Jesus accepts that title. And he praises Peter and rewards him. He makes Peter the first pope. He gives him the keys of the kingdom. He says, you're the rock upon which I'm going to build my church. Just imagine if you were one of those apostles there that day and you heard this dialogue between Jesus and Peter. Your heart is rising. You're excited. You're ecstatic. Yes, yes, indeed, Jesus is the king we thought he was. But then Jesus does the most unexpected thing. He looks at all of you apostles and he says, shh, don't tell anyone. He basically says, let's keep this a secret between us. Let's keep this on the down low. Now, isn't that strange? Why does Jesus tell the apostles not to say anything? Isn't that what he wants them to do, to go out and preach the gospel and announce he is the Messiah? Why is Jesus telling them not to tell anyone? Is this maybe reverse psychology? (laughs) You know, maybe Jesus is really frustrated with the apostles. Man, they just keep making all these mistakes. They misunderstand. They can never get it right. So I'll tell them not to tell anyone, and maybe then they'll start telling people. (laughs) Is that what's going on there? I don't think so. I think if we understand what's happening in the first century Jewish context, historically, Jesus's concern is totally understandable that he would want them to keep this very, very quiet. Why? Well, in the first century Jewish world, there were many very political understandings of the Messiah, that the Messiah was expected to be like this political revolutionary who's going to go fight off the Romans and liberate the people from their enemies and, and start this, this, this political kingdom, a worldly kingdom. And, and, and Jesus knows if word gets out that he's claiming to be that kind of a king, that that's going to attract the wrong sort of attention. Rome is going to come in and squash this movement right away uh, because the Romans want to maintain order. They do not want any type of rebel movement to get any steam going, so they destroy those movements as quick as possible. Jesus knows that, and he knows he is going to die, but it's just not the right time. Why? Three things. First, he has more work to do with his disciples. There's going to be a lot of training he has to give them uh, on the way down to Jerusalem. Secondly, and then Jerusalem's a key thing here, that's where the king was expected to establish the kingdom. Not way up in Caesarea Philippi. The Jewish king was expected to come to Jerusalem. So Jesus needs to go there, not Caesarea Philippi. So he's got to get to Jerusalem. And the king was expected to come establish his kingdom during Passover. And so it's not the right time yet. So for those three reasons, Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. He's got to go there for Passover, and he's got some more training to do on the way to Jerusalem with his apostles. So that's why he's not ready for this to get out yet. He wants to keep this quiet, keep this just between them. Uh, And from this moment on, he's going to start traveling down through Galilee, through Judea, down to Jerusalem. And one day, Jesus finally gets there. He gets to the holy city. And suddenly, as he enters the holy city, everyone's just shouting out in great enthusiasm. The crowds come pouring out and they treat him like a king. They start taking off their garments, putting them before Jesus, like a royal carpet being laid before him. They're waving the palm branches. They're calling him the son of David. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're basically hailing Jesus as the Messiah King. My question for you is what happened? How do they know? They weren't up in Caesarea Philippi when Jesus said that. How do they know he's the king? Was there a leak in the administration? You know, maybe WikiLeaks got a report. You know, Peter couldn't keep it to himself, so he had to go just tell someone. Or maybe they told their friends in Jerusalem. Is that what happened here? I would suggest to you the reason the crowds come shouting out and hailing Jesus as a king 
is because of the donkey. It all has to do with the donkey and the symbolism of the donkey, right? Uh, As I mentioned to you, Jesus is always traveling on foot. So we as readers, if we see him suddenly saying, go get me a donkey, that's, that's bizarre. That's strange. That should stand out for us. We should be wondering, why is Jesus asking for a donkey? That's significant. What's the meaning of this? And we also know historically pilgrims normally entered the city on foot, and that's how Jesus travels. So why? Why suddenly is there a donkey? there. I want to talk to you about the symbolism of the donkey. Four points I want to make. Are you ready? First, Mark 11.2 tells us one little detail about the donkey, and that is the donkey Jesus gets is a donkey on which no one ever sat. No one ever sat on this donkey before. Why is that significant? Because in the Jewish tradition, that's the kind of donkey that was reserved for a king. Uh, in, in the Jewish literature known as the, the Mishnah, there's a saying that no one else ever rides the king's donkey or the king's horse. Only the king rides on that. So for Mark 11.2 to give us this little detail that this is a donkey upon which no one ever sat, that's not just a random little throwaway line, a little background detail. No, that's signaling to us he is the king. Secondly, even more important, uh, we turn to 1 Kings 1, 38 through 40. Uh, there's a great account of another great king that entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And that's the story of Solomon, the son of David. When Solomon was coming to claim his throne in Jerusalem, how did he enter the holy city? Riding on a donkey. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is reenacting that story. He's shouting out, I'm the new son of David. I'm the new Solomon. I'm the new king coming to be enthroned. And he's going to reenact just what what, what Solomon went through. He's going to come in riding on the donkey. Uh, And remember what Jesus himself said about Solomon. He said, I say to you, something greater than Solomon is here. He's the new Solomon coming in on the donkey to claim his throne. Uh, Another passage, third passage we could think about is 2 Kings 9.13. Uh, we read there about people throwing their garments on the way before the king, King Jehu. That's what they did for King Jehu. Jehu, that's what they're doing for Jesus now, laying out like a royal carpet for Jesus. But the passage that has the greatest significance for our purposes comes in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. In Zechariah 9, 9, centuries before Jesus, the prophet Zechariah foretold that one day the son of David, the great king, the Lord, would come to Jerusalem, come to Mount Zion, riding on a donkey. He'd come not on a chariot, not on a war horse. No, he was going to come humble on a donkey. And here's my question for you. Do you think Jesus knew that prophecy? Every Jew knew that prophecy, right? They're longing for that prophecy to be fulfilled. Uh, But Jesus is the Holy Son of God. He knew that prophecy. He wrote that prophecy. Uh, Sometimes I think we we, we imagine Jesus just randomly doing actions that happen to fulfill prophecies from the Old Testament. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is aware of these prophecies, and many times he's deliberately, intentionally going out of his way to fulfill them. Uh, That's what he's doing here. He knows Zechariah 9.9. So when he enters the holy city. I'm just picture the scene. All the large crowds of uh, around Jerusalem, all gathered around, and they're they're ready to welcome Jesus into the holy city. And then Jesus suddenly says, "Go fetch me a donkey." Think about what that would mean if you were one of those Jews in Jerusalem and you saw you you heard Jesus was coming to your city. You heard that he was announcing a kingdom. You heard about his miracles. You heard about his preaching. You're hoping that he may be the one that he's going to be the Messiah. And then as you watch him enter in, you see him on a donkey. 
you're like, wow, he's fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. No wonder people ecstatically praise him and hail him as king. Um, Jesus here, going into the holy city. We have to see this, my friends. He is not saying a single word, but in his silence, he is boldly shouting out, I am the king. That's the symbolism. By riding on a donkey without saying a word, just riding a donkey in the holy city, he is boldly proclaiming for the first time publicly, I am the Messiah. I am the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. I am the king. And in a few days, he's going to pay the price. Because you can't go around claiming to be king and expect to survive long under Roman rule. This is what the Jewish authorities are going to use against him just a few days later. They're going to go to Pilate and say, this man stirs up the people. This man claims to be a king. He's going to be a rival to Caesar. This is what they're going to use against him. So this gives us a little backdrop to understanding Holy Week. For our own lives, I want you to think about there's one line uh, from Palm Sunday that should be very familiar to all of us as Catholics because we hear this line in the liturgy. Every day we may go to Mass, we're going to hear this line. Do you remember that line? In the Holy, Holy, Holy Prayer, the Sanctus, we repeat the words from Palm Sunday. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Why do we repeat these words from Palm Sunday? Because, in a sense, the mystery of Palm Sunday is made anew to us at every liturgy. Because just as the Jews welcomed Jesus within their city walls with those words, we're preparing to welcome Jesus into the walls of our soul in Holy Communion. You see, some 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered the Holy City riding humbly on a donkey. He came to the people humbly on a donkey. Our Lord Jesus comes to us today at every Mass so humbly, not on a donkey, but even more humbly. He's coming under the appearance of bread and wine. He's coming to us in the Eucharist. So isn't it fitting that we would use the same words that the people back then used to welcome Jesus into their lives. Uh, Let's welcome Jesus with all of our hearts, not just this Palm Sunday liturgy, but every liturgy throughout the year, because every Mass is kind of like a little Palm Sunday as we welcome Jesus into the walls of our soul. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, my friends, I hope this has been helpful for you. If you enjoy this podcast and you think it might be helpful for someone else, please share it with others. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so for already. And if you have any questions, you can reach out to me at edwardsreed.com. Send me your questions. I'm doing a Q&A episode later this spring, and I want to say thank you to the many people who've reached out to me with various questions from my podcast or just anything about the Catholic faith. You can reach out to me, edwardsreed.com, or you can find me and contact me through Facebook or Twitter. May God bless you. You know, the Palm Sunday liturgy can sometimes seem a bit self-contradictory. We open the Mass crying, Hosanna to the King, and proclaiming Jesus the long-awaited Messiah. And just a few short minutes later, we raise our voices to shout, Crucify Him! Our next offering on the sampler looks at this paradox through a homily by Father Robert Lampett from St. John's Catholic Newman Center at the University of Illinois 
at Urbana-Champaign. This Sunday, this Palm Sunday, more than any other Sunday liturgy, really pulls us into the Mass, into the mysteries that we celebrate. All the Holy Week liturgies do this to some degree, but this one in particular where we shout together, crucify him, crucify him. Our voices join the chorus of voices that condemn Jesus, and they join the chorus of so many Christians through the past centuries that have participated in the Passion in this way. It's so jarring, isn't it? Every year it's jarring to utter what we so often feel but are afraid to admit. That life, we think, would be better. It would be freer, more enjoyable, if Jesus wasn't making so many de demands of us. Sure, we appreciate it when we can uh, go to him in our time of need, but when life is good, which is most of the time, it's more of a labor than a joy to be a follower of Jesus. So take him away, crucify him, crucify him, get him out of here. I don't want to be bothered by him and his teachings and his expectations. So be honest, don't you sometimes resent Jesus, resent being a Christian, being a Catholic? Maybe resent's a strong word. Maybe it's more like just an attitude of indifference, like this doesn't really matter to me anymore. What's this all about? It doesn't really seem to have an effect on my life. We have a preference oftentimes to be free of the demands of Jesus, which impinge upon our freedom, our lives, our desires. And really, even the most devoted of souls feels this tension at times. The great saints, all of them, are tempted at the moment of their death to just despair, to give up, even in that last moment. They've made it their whole lives. But in that last moment, they feel the weight of being a disciple of Jesus. That inability to live up to the demands of the gospel, to love God and my neighbor as they deserve. It's a lot of work, a lot of effort. So get him out of here, crucify him. I'd rather party, I'd rather be part of that hookup culture, I'd rather be uh, able to listen and to watch whatever I wanna to listen to and, and to watch whatever I want to watch. I don't wanna be bothered with having to pray more. I don't care about cheating or lying, I don't care about hurting others. I just care about myself and Jesus isn't helping myself, so get him out of here. So let's not sugarcoat it. Let's not sugarcoat our situation today. Let's uh, really sit with this possibility that we're confronted with in this passion of our Lord. We're overwhelmed, it's understandable. We're overwhelmed, we can be frustrated, we can feel very alone. So it makes sense that we would cry out, crucify him, enough. So let's for once be honest about those feelings, about those frustrations. And let's sit with it. Let's sit with that possibility of no more Jesus, of no more God in our lives. And let's wait and let's see how God responds. Will he still love us? Even if we rebel, even if we push him off to the side, even if we crucify him? Does he care? Does he care about me? Does he care about you? Does he care about our, our loved ones who are suffering? Can he, can he do anything anyway? 
if we push him off to the side? And more importantly, will he even care if we do that? Is there anything that God could do to convince us that it really is all worth it? Is there anything that would cause us to, we might say, come to our senses and actually desire to change our lives, to think that there really is and, and really believe in a greater possibility? Is there anything he could do to get us to think differently? I imagine ourselves like children who are so tired and frustrated that all they can do is, is cry and toss and turn as their mother or father tries to embrace them and to comfort them and to get them off to sleep, which is probably what they need. And so you and I, we're tired, we're worn out. We toss and we turn and we put up a fight and that's what all of our sins and all of our disobedience, all of our rebellion is evidence of. It's just us who are just, just tired and frustrated. We don't understand. We might even at times cry out with the psalmist, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why can I, can I not feel or sense your presence? Why is my life still difficult? But God, truly, God has not abandoned us. It's we who've abandoned God. So now we must sit with the mess we have created. We're left to ourselves. We're, we're left without Jesus. We're left without God, without the saints, without the church. Imagine an existence without any of that, without any of those people in our lives. And I want to invite you this week, at least, at least this day and at least in this hour, to lean into that and to try to imagine what that might be like. To have that little taste of a life without hope, left to your own devices, only you can satisfy whatever it is that's ailing you. You have to be the solution to whatever problem ails you. Sit with that, that inability to hope in some greater power that, that does love you. It's a jarring exercise, it's bitter, it's sad, it should make us weep. We have gotten what we wanted today, for a moment at least. We've gotten what we deserve, that God is dead, and we have killed him. So let us say, let us wait and see and observe. He saved others. Jesus saved others. Let's see if he will save himself. He saved others. Let's see if he cares about you and me. Let's see if he can save us. You're listening to the Lunchtime Podcast Sampler on Catholic Radio Indy. We'll be back with more right after this. So, the scan button brought you here. Awesome. We like company. Get to know us. And if you have to leave, come back. You're always welcome. Catholic Radio Indy. Alexa, what's the weather forecast for today? Alexa, what time is the Colts game today? Alexa, remind me to pick up the dry cleaning tomorrow. Has Alexa become a part of your daily routine? Then make sure that routine includes Alexa 
Play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy. Quick, easy access to Catholic programming 24-7. Just say, Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy. What does it actually mean that man is made in the image and likeness of God? It means that man is unique in God's world, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In his own nature, man unites the spiritual and the material world. God created them male and female. Only man of all God's creatures is able to know and love God. He is the only creature willed into existence for his own sake. Man is not just something, he is someone capable of self-knowledge and self-possession. He is able to be freely in communication with other men and women, and he is called to a covenant with his creator. He is asked to respond to God with love and faith in a way that no other creature can. The Catechism states that God made everything for man. Man, in turn, is called to serve God and to love Him, offering all of creation back to Him. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Hi, I'm Patty Cochran. Are you a non-Catholic who listens to Catholic Radio? Would you like to find out more about how to join the Catholic Church? There's a program called RCIA that can introduce you to the Catholic faith, and it's available at your local parish. You don't have to make a commitment to participate in the program. Just try it out. I did, and it was one of the best steps I've ever made. Contact your local parish office for more information and start your journey home. In Lent, we are called to prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. It's a rather solemn time, and so holding a celebration during Lent sometimes seems out of place. In this episode of the Question and Answer show, Ask Father Josh from Ascension Press, Father Josh Johnson looks at this challenge along with how we should respond to unhelpful words of condolence. What's up and welcome to Ask Father Josh, the podcast where I get to listen to your questions, pray with them, and hopefully respond in such a way that it's helpful for you to become a saint in your walk toward eternity. Here's how the show goes. You hit me up with three to five questions dealing with anything and everything from morality to spirituality, relationship advice, evangelization, discipleship and catechesis, justice and charity. The list goes on and on and on. I will sit with your questions. I will pray with them and hopefully I will respond in such a way that it's helpful for you to become a saint and your journey toward heaven. But my disclaimer is this and has always been this, I am not perfect. Therefore, the advice I share with you, the responses I give to you might not be good for you. If that's the case, please reject whatever it is that I say that does not help you to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ and his church. But if my advice is helpful, though difficult, then I really wanna encourage you to lean into Jesus Christ in prayer and study and fellowship and worship so that God can give you the graces you may need to become a saint over time to fulfill the demands of discipleship in your walk toward heaven. If you are a first-time listener, you can hit me up with your own questions at www.assistionpress.com slash askfatherjosh, spell out A-S-K-F-A-T-H-E-R-J-O-S-H. You can also rate us and review us on iTunes and Spotify and Google Play and any other podcast format. And you can share us on your social media pages. Whenever you rate us, review us, and share us, it helps other people to find out about the show. So if it's been a gift for you, potentially, it could become a gift for other people as well. On today's show, we are going to address two questions. One, 
celebrating during Lent. We are still in the Lenten season. It is still a time of increased prayer and fasting and almsgiving. So what if our birthday falls in this season? What if we uh, graduate? What if we have an anniversary? Uh, what if we have some kind of big event like a marriage? Can we actually celebrate or do we have to be like uber penitential during that time as well and go without? And also, how can we properly and very Christianly respond to untrue words of condolences, particularly whenever people say things to us regarding our miscarriages? So a lot of women, a lot of couples uh, experience miscarriages and it's just so so sad and so heartbreaking. And sometimes they're brothers and sisters, sometimes they're priests, sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're um, fellow Catholics say the most ridiculous things to them as they're grieving. And so how can we help them and how do we respond to them whenever they say things to us that are just completely out of line? So we're going to address those two questions on today's show. But before we get into those two really, really, really good questions, I want to share with you a glory story. All right, all right, all right. Glory story. So this past week, last Friday, um, Pope Francis, our papa, papa, papa Francis, and many, many bishops throughout the, the world uh, consecrated Russia and the Ukraine to uh, Our Lady, right? To the Immaculate Heart of Mary, to her intercession, um, to her prayers, to her maternity, for her to be the one to plead before the throne of her son, Jesus Christ, for there to be peace in our world. And that is such, such a gift. Now, just so we're clear, John Paul II already fulfilled the request of Fatima. So many years ago, Blessed Mother appeared in Fatima in 1917. The year before she appeared, the angel of the Lord appeared, St. Michael, to the three kids, Francesco, Lucia, and Jacinta. Of course, Jacinta and Lucia died. No, I'm sorry. Jacinta and Francesco died as children. Lucia went on to become a sister. And um, But Blessed Mother asked them to pray and to fast, to do penance, to offer sacrifices. Uh, and then she particularly asked for consecration of Russia, right? Uh, around the time Blessed Mother appeared, that's when like Margaret Sanger, who was a devout racist. Margaret Sanger is, again, she is an image bearer of God. She is somebody who we should definitely pray and fast that she converted before she died. I don't know if she did or not, but I believe that I can pray today and that maybe she did repent before she died. But she was like one of the biggest racists in the world. Like she was a eugenicist. She wanted to kill all black babies and all special needs babies. And now Planned Parenthood clinics are all over the world and they target babies of all races and ethnicities, uh, of all genders. Uh, but particularly, they're typically found in predominantly low-income black and brown communities. And so her mission is being accomplished really well. In 1916, I think, is whenever she really took off. In 1917 is whenever her videos went out to promote her her cause, which was a cause of complete evil and is having, uh, it's just tearing apart our communities. So around that time where Fatima happened, Margaret Sanger was doing her, her thing. Uh, the the Masons who are anti-Catholic, the Masons whose mission is to destroy the Catholic Church, the Masons who founded many of the fraternities and sororities that some of you who listen to my podcast might be members of. And if you are, you might want to bounce up out of those things. The Masons uh, began to have their banking overtake of Russia, uh, and there was wars going on. So in all this time of like corruption and evil, Mary appears to three kids in Fatima, like a little nowhere town of like, what good can come out of Fatima? Just like in the Bible, it says like, what good can come out of Nazareth? What good comes out of Fatima? Well, Mary appeared to three kids, and those three kids who 
spread the message of the rosary, three kids who spread the message of like living a life of fasting and penance and sacrifice, of reparation. Uh, and so after the two children, Jacinta and Francesco died, Mary continued to appear to Sister Lucia. Sister Lucia received the message that Mary also wanted her to invite Catholics all over the world to offer reparation. The word reparation comes from the word repair, which means to make it right. Um, so offer reparations for the sins against her immaculate heart, the blasphemies against her, her maternity as the mother of God, against her virginity, uh, the images that are, are made of her. Right? One of the commandments is honor your father and mother. And so all this to say, there's a bunch of blasphemies that are committed against Mary that break the heart of Jesus. And she's like, look, one of the commandments is on your mother. People are not honoring me. This is not concerning the heart of Jesus. I want you to spread this devotion for people to hit the first five Saturdays, uh, consecutive Saturdays throughout the year, five Saturdays, and uh, first five ones of the month, and offer up reparation. Go to Mass, go to confession, pray the rosary, and uh, meditate on Jesus with me for 15 minutes. Again, reparation, so beautiful. So, Reparation is one of those gifts where uh, even if we didn't commit the sin, we're still responsible for the sins of others, right? This is in the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah, the prophets, they offered up reparation for people's sins who were not their own. Uh, Zacchaeus, uh, he offered up reparation to be reconciled to this community for his sins because it's the law of Moses that you have to pay back four times what you owe. So as a priest, I did this for people. They come to confession. They confess their sins. I offer reparation for them. I do penances for them. I didn't commit their sins but I still do stuff for them. So as members of the body of Christ, we're all responsible for each other. So whether or not you have ever blasphemed our blessed mother, whether or not you have ever questioned her virginity or spoken out against her being the mother of God or desecrated an image of Mary is irrelevant. Someone has. And because someone has, we are responsible for making a reparation. And if we do this, in addition to the consecration of Russia and Ukraine, we can cultivate peace in our community establish mutual trust between peoples throughout the geographical boundaries of our land. Now, why is this all a glorious story? Because on Friday of last week, Pope Francis and all the bishops, they consecrated Russia. And again, like I said before, John Paul did this before too, uh, when he consecrated the world, Russia's including the world. Uh, but what's really special about Pope Francis being the one to lead this consecration is that so many people have been like, hating on Pope Francis since he's been the Pope for different reasons, right? And we don't need to go into all those reasons, but people have been hating on Pope Francis a lot. And they'd be like, ah, oh, saying all these things about him. And I'm like, you know what? No matter what you say about the man, at the end of the day, he's the Pope that led us in a specific consecration of Russia to our Blessed Mother's prayers of intercession. So shout out to P Papa Francesco. Uh, he led us in this consecration. So let us be grateful for that. Let's be so grateful for that. Um, and, and I do believe that the fruit of all of us from around the world being drawn together to to pray and to fast and to recite the rosary and to consecrate Russia and Ukraine, I do believe that we will begin to see peace from that. He's also the Pope who, on Ash Wednesday, this past, this past Ash Wednesday, a few weeks ago, about a month ago, he invited the whole world to fast for Russia and Ukraine, for there to be peace. And so when you pray, when you fast, he's, in, he's calling us to increase prayer and increase fasting during this time. And I'm just so grateful for that. But I'm also wanting to invite us to not settle for mediocrity, to not just like be like, oh, we did a consecration, whoop de woo that's enough. Nah, like, Blessed Mother asked Sister Lucia to also encourage us to participate in the first five Saturdays by offering up those first five Saturdays in reparation for sins committed against her. And one of the fruits of offering up those first five Saturdays is going to be peace in the world. So whether or not we are responsible for the sins, we are certainly responsible for making up for the sins that not only we have committed, but our brothers and sisters committed, because at the end of the day, we are all connected. We are all one body. And so what you do affects me and what I do affects you. Uh, so praise God, shout out for Lucia, 
for learning how to read and write so she can like share this message with us and uh, for Pope Francis for inviting us and so many of the bishops, including my bishop, Michael Duca, for um, inviting the diocese around the world to participate in this consecration because yeah, there's power that comes through praying and fasting and just being super intentional uh, with our Lord. So that's that. Now, before I go into the questions, I just want to, I feel so convicted right now to share this. Oh, so this Sunday, the gospel is prodigal son, merciful father, and the older brother who stayed home, but psh, wasn't really in relationship with the father. And I was so convicted. I have so many homilies that I think I could give. Um, I'm preaching the night mass at Christ the King this weekend, so I'm not sure what I'm going to say when I preach because they're like, there's all these ideas that are coming to me. I'm feeling overwhelmed right now by the gospel. The gospel is so good. But I do think I need to say this at least. The older brother did not see himself the way that his father saw him, and he did not see his brother the way that the father saw him and his brother. The the older brother in the gospel, he literally says, he says like, he talks about like being a servant for his father. And yes, we're called to be servants of God. We are called to be servants of God. I, I know that to be true. But the father's like, you're my son. And what I had was yours. Like He did not see himself as a son of the father. And how many of us don't see ourselves the way God sees us? We don't recognize that we are beloved sons and daughters of God the father. He also... Instead of saying my brother, the prodigal, you know, the prodigal son, he said, your son, your son did this. Like, you know how like if you're, if, for those of you who listen who are married, you're like, whenever your kid is good, you're always like, oh, my baby did this. But whenever your kid is bad, you go to your spouse and say, you better get your son. You better get your daughter, right? That's what he essentially did to his brother. He was like, your, your son did this. Your son did that. You did this for, for your son. He's like, no, nah, that's your brother. That's your brother. He didn't see his brother the way that God saw him. And I think that so for many of us, we don't see ourselves the way God sees us. And we also don't see each other the way God sees our brothers and sisters. We are all connected. By virtue of our baptism, we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We might disagree with each other politically, ideologically. We might be more conservative or more liberal, more progressive or more traditional. We might be black or white or brown. We might be male or female, young or old. We might be Republican or Democrat or independent or whatever else there is out there. But at the end of the day, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the body of Jesus Christ. And we are invited by God to, to recognize that we are his beloved, that he delights in us, that he loves us, that he unconditionally loves us and chooses us and calls us by name. But also we are invited by the Lord to begin to look at each other and see Christ in each other. You are my brother. You are my sister. Yeah, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like what you've done to me or to other people. But at the end of the day, I will pray and I will fast and I will offer preparation for you because I can't imagine heaven without you. That's the invitation from the Lord that I just perceive in my heart right now is God is just inviting us, I believe, and I really do perceive this in prayer. He's inviting us to, to want heaven for everyone. I want heaven for you. Yeah, you have literally committed mortal sin after mortal sin. You have done injustices that have cried out to heaven because of the sins you've committed against humanity. But I want heaven for you. I desire for you to be able to repent and reform your lifestyle and be reconciled to God and the church, to be restored. I desire that for everybody because I want heaven for you, because you're my brother, because God loves you, because Jesus Christ died for you. And I want you to receive his passion, death, and resurrection and the graces that come with that relationship. So I just really do perceive like, oh man, I've been praying with the scripture and whoa, like we do not, we don't get it. We, and when I say we, I'm talking about me. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it at all. I don't see everybody the way God sees, sees my brothers and sisters. I don't see everybody. I don't treat them the way that God wants me to treat them as if they really are the body of Christ by virtue of their baptism. Mm, I don't. So anyways, with that being said, that was my tangent. Is it called a tangent? Is that what it's called? My rant, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Anyways, let's go ahead and jump into today's show. Okay. 
All right, all right, all right. First question comes in from Anonymous, and it is about celebrating during Lent. Hey, Father Josh, I've been listening to your podcast for a while now, and I've enjoyed learning about so many new things pertaining to our Catholic Church, especially when it is a practical application. My question is, I have a birthday during Lent. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Anonymous. My birthday is during Lent. To what extent am I able to celebrate? Celebrate, hey. Celebrate, celebrate, hey. I was previously thinking of throwing a party for my close friends, but then I also felt guilty for celebrating during Lent. Should I also refrain from serving dessert or alcohol, the al- uh, 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 alcohol, since these are common things to give up for Lent? I'm hoping that you can help me understand the attitude of the church towards celebrations during Lent and potentially offer some suggestions on how to celebrate in a respectful manner. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Mm-hmm. Take care, T-C-B. Respect, taking care of business. Lucy Casey, shout out to you for teaching me that that's what Aretha... Franklin was saying. All right, so that's a, this is actually a really great question. Love the question. And I just want to acknowledge that this shows your sincerity with your relationship with Jesus Christ and the church you found 2,000 years ago. The fact that you're even asking this question, because some people wouldn't even care. So I'm going to break this down to, to three points. Number one uh, is is this. Um, they There are celebrations that happen during Lent. Like we just celebrated on Friday the solemnity of the Annunciation of Mary. And on that solemnity, uh, we feasted. You don't fast on a Sunday. You don't fast on a solemnity. So you feast. And there are four days of Lent. Why are there four days? Because we don't count Sundays. Sundays are days of feasting, not fasting. If we count Sundays, it would be 46 days. But also in Lent, every now and then, we have these solemnities. So we had St. Joseph's Day a few weeks ago, and we had the solemnity of the Annunciation. And on solemnities, we celebrate. Now, that does not mean that you, like, some people don't know how to be temperate and how to um, be prudent and and just, like, you know, right, celebrate, but, like, right, right, with reason and virtue. So if you gave up chocolate, like, don't, like, overindulge in chocolate. Like, have a Snickers. Have a Reese's Pieces peanut butter cup, right? Do your thing. Get a little, little Milky Way or two. But don't overdo it, right? So that if you give up alcohol... Yeah, you can like have, have some alcohol on this solemnity. Uh, you can even have meat on solemnities, right? But like, don't overdo it, right? So you do it within balance of like still keeping in mind that there are people around the world, our brothers and sisters, who are image bearers of God who don't have what we have, right? I just got back from Mexico and the people literally lived in huts. Like they had very few things, but what they had, they shared with each other and us. It was so beautiful. It was like the Acts of the Apostles. They were living out. We could learn so much from our brothers and sisters who live in dire poverty. Um, But yeah, but with that being said, yeah, so you can celebrate during Lent. We have solemnities, we have Sundays, and we have big old feast days. But in addition to those, we're still invited to like abstain from meat on Fridays in general during Lent. So if you want to throw a party on a Friday, a party, house party, then you can have a party, but just like Again, abstain from meat. Like remember to keep Friday so that you can be united to your whole family throughout the world who's also abstaining from this luxury of meat that we certainly have in abundance here in America. And then with that, uh, I would encourage you to, if you're having a party on Friday, not only abstain from meat, but like maybe invite your guests who are coming to your party to participate in your prayer, fasting, and almsgiving in a particular way. So pray at your party at some point, right? I don't know why we don't invite Jesus to our parties. He wants to party with us. He wants to be invited to every aspect of our lives. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to be relegated to Sunday and to be compartmentalized to just Sunday worship and then Monday through Saturday, he's nowhere on a calendar. Like, invite him into your party by praying at the beginning of your party, 
and at the end of your party, maybe, uh, certainly blessing the food, but also in abstaining from meat. So like you got a little ab- absence going on uh, and maybe like invite everyone who comes to give alms. So like instead of giving you a gift on your birthday, like they, they come to celebrate you, they come to right, party with you to love on you, but maybe encourage them to bring a gift for the poor. And that way you could then donate all those gifts that you get at your party for the poorest of the poor in your community. This is a beautiful way that you invite them. And, and also it could be a bridge for them to be like, wait a minute, this is super unique. Like I've never gone to a party where I've been asked to bring canned goods or blessing beds. So long story short, you can party there in Lent, but encouragement is to still abstain. Encouragement is to recognize that you are still being invited to be a witness to your brothers and sisters and discipleship and following the demands of discipleship and praying and fasting and almsgiving in a unique way. But you can certainly party. Like if you graduated during Lent, you can have a graduation party. Like God wants us to celebrate, but just within reason and within boundaries. So that's what I'll say with that. So with that, let's go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, we're going to have to our final question about how to respond to untrue words of condolence, particularly regarding miscarriages. Stay tuned. And we're back. Our final question also comes in from Anonymous, and it's about how to respond uh, to untrue words of condolence. Hey, Father Josh, my husband and I recently experienced a miscarriage. I'm so, so sorry to hear that. Uh, That's heartbreaking. Uh, We haven't shared this with most of the people in our life except a few close friends and family members. I received some words of condolence that really bothered me because I know that they aren't true. The words are, God just needed another angel. All right, yeah, first of all, we don't become angels. Angels are separate species. So when people say like, oh, God wanted an angel, that's just not true. We're humans, we become saints. This sounds real nice, but I know that this is not true. How do I respond to this person or do I just let it be? Great, great question, Anonymous. And again, I'm so sorry that you experienced a miscarriage. I will offer mass for you this evening and for your, your husband and for your baby. So if you've ever had this experience of a miscarriage, it is heart-wrenching. It is unfortunate. And I just want you to know, whoever you are listening to the podcast right now, you are not alone. God is with you always until the end of time. And there are so many other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, i.e. the saints, the blessings, the venerables and servants of God, who also experienced the pain of miscarriages. And I just believe that they, the saints, blessings, venerables, and servants of God want you to know that you are not alone. One of the, those saints is St. Zelie Martin and her husband, St. Louis Martin. These are the parents of St. Therese of Lisieux, the little flower, the doctor of the church. St. Zelie uh, and St. Louis Martin experienced multiple miscarriages. So I just personally believe that they could be powerful intercessors from heaven uh, for you. And I would just would encourage you to reach out to them and to get to know them and invite them to pray for you and to minister to you while you are awake and while you are asleep. And as far as the comments go from your friends, yeah, you know, sometimes people just don't know what to say. And they really do mean well, but I've heard so many terrible stories of some of the most ridiculous things that people, including priests, deacons, religious, and lay people have said to our brothers and sisters who have had miscarriages, some of the most ridiculous things ever that are so painful and that just cut to the heart. And so concerning those comments, um, no matter how meaning their words were, um, what they said is not okay. It's just not okay. And so should you inform them about your thoughts, feelings, and desires concerning their words about your miscarriage? Uh, okay, this is up to you. you. You could be a saint by informing them. You could be a saint by not informing them. So based on your personality, based on your temperament, based on your psychological health and your mental well-being, like all of this needs to be taken into context. How close are you or whatever? But I do think if you can, I do think 
you could. I'm not gonna say you should, because I don't wanna put no pressure on you, but you could certainly uh, fraternally correct them. Because I believe that letting them know would not only be healthy for you, but also helpful for them in the future because other people in their community are gonna have miscarriages and we don't want them to say ridiculous comments to those other people as, as well. So your conversation with them, your dialogue with them can help prevent them from hurting other people the way that they have hurt you um, as, as well. So while we're talking about what people can do, I just wanna highly right now, real quick, encourage Catholic parishes uh, to accompany their parishioners who have suffered from miscarriages um, by from the pulpit, like acknowledging that you have the capacity in most parishes of the capacity, if not that parish, then uh, the, in the deanery, the deanery has the capacity in the diocese to bury the children for free, to establish some kind of meal training for families who are suffering from miscarriages, to pray for them and with them, to simply sit with them at their home and listen to them and let them talk without saying too much. Just be present to them. And so if you are a DRE or an adult faith formation director or a pastoral associate or a parish administrator or a deacon or a priest or a youth minister, I just want to encourage you to do something for the people in your community who are suffering from miscarriages. Now, if we're going to say something, what do we say and what do we not say? So I found this really cool article on catholiclink.com. It was my first time going there and it gave a bunch of points. I'm going to narrow it down to five points about things that we could say that could be a gift for our friends um, so that we can uh, be aware of how to best accompany them if they suffer a miscarriage and things not to say. So let's start with the via negativa. What do we not say? Don't say this. Don't say, if only you had never known you were pregnant. Why do we not say this? Because miscarriage is a delicate thing, right? When a couple realizes the joy of growing inside uh, of them in their womb, they get hope. And, and maybe even before they have a chance to even see an ultrasound or only seeing a tiny little outline of their child, it's all taken away from them. And so you want to take away their pain, but what it sounds like that you're saying is you want to take away their child. You don't need to solve their problems. There's nothing anyone can do anymore. The child has gone to God. So what you might mean is this, if only these things didn't ever happen and you could have had the baby, I'm so sorry for your loss. Uh, what you might wanna say is this, it's a blessing to know this. I'm honored you share them with me. Number two, don't say, at least you know you can get pregnant. Why? Because they might not know that. The, the couple might have had tried for a very, 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 very long time, and they didn't end up with a healthy child in their arms. They may have had multiple miscarriages, maybe, and this hurts them. And so your friends might be thinking, well, what's the point of getting pregnant if I lose a child again? Infertility is a struggle that so many couples experience. Child loss is a significant pain and heartache. It is a struggle. So please don't compare. Right? So instead, what you might want to say is, I am so sorry you're going through this. This is really hard. How can I help? Number three, don't say you have other kids or, well, it's for the better. You have so many children already. Uh, and there are other uh, people in the world that don't have kids. And, you know, you're just too busy, right? So why? Because one person's life doesn't replace another person's life. It's not a matter of having five kids or 10 kids or 12 kids, right? It's important, literally, to not brush this issue off so rudely. And so don't suggest that they can't handle what God's already blessed them with. That's not being supportive. Instead, you might mean this, losing this child must be very difficult because you love each other and your children so much and you have the opportunity to show this love to this child in the same way. I pray that a blessed mother holds your child for you and tells your child all about the family who loves them, right? And four, don't say, well, 
at least it was just such and such weeks along. Imagine the devastation it would have been if it was a stillborn, if it was a toddler or a teenager who had cancer. Why? Because every loss of a child is a loss of a child. It is painful. Whether the child is in the womb for five weeks or six months or nine months, whether the child is out of the womb for two years or 10 years or 20 years, the child is a child. Losing a child is losing a child, right? And it's an ache and it's a pain. Um, so I just would encourage you to not say that. Miscarriages, they don't have to have a face for the mom and dad to remember them. Instead, what you might want to say is this, that is so early. This must be a roller coaster of emotions and I'm here for you. And finally, don't say, well, you could try again. You're still young. Why? Because right now they might not want to try again. Grief is real and you might not be ready to try again. So this child might have been there. Try again. <laughs> it doesn't matter if they're young, if they're whatever, if they have time. Now is not the time to point that out. Being young does not mean you're free to be free of pain. Instead, what you might want to say is, I am so sorry you're going through this period. Right? St. Zelie herself, she said, we shall find our little ones again up above. Right? So it's just painful. And she knows the pain. St. Zelie knows the pain. She is with you. So I just want to encourage you to reverence your friends and your family. Pray about what you're going to say and not say. And, um, and it's more important about being there than saying anything. But as far as you letting your friends know what they said was hurtful, I don't think you should say anything, but I think you could say something if you really feel called to. And I think you would be uh, right. There's nothing wrong with you correcting them. I, um, it would only bring out good, but you don't have to. I want to give you the freedom to, to do what is best for you. Uh, so, yeah, so I got those pieces of wisdom from catholiclink.com. So with that being said, let's go ahead and pray to our blessed mother. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, y'all, I look forward to continuing our walk with each other. Don't forget my new book, On Earth As It Is in Heaven, Restoring God's Vision for Race and Discipleship, comes out in April. You can order on ascensionpress.com. And so please go ahead and get that, support that, so that you can be used by God to further his mission of making disciples of all nations on earth as it is in heaven. Deuces! <laughs>
podcasts of this and all our other great local programs are available 24-7 at catholicradioindy.org.